0: Welcome to this Roundup. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit nations with many unknown and known risks. While the world is trying to understand the unknowns, much of the familiar known seems also to be getting beyond our control. As a result, both lives and livelihoods, investments and institutions, governments and governance models, business and commerce, manufacturing and supply chains, economic and national security are at risk. So the question then emerges is about our preparedness, our systems preparedness, and our nation's preparedness. To discuss COVID-19 pandemic preparedness further, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Scott Rosenstein to Risk Roundup. Professor Rosenstein is a public health professor and special advisor of global health to Eurasia Group based in the United States. Welcome, Professor Rosenstein. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here
0: wonderful process. So while most nations and its governments have responded by declaring a public health emergency and are adopting known measures to prevent the infectivity and limit the viral outbreak, millions of lives have already been significantly altered and there is no going back. So as COVID-19 continues to radically transform daily life for anyone, what? are your concerns about the state of public health today and in the coming tomorrow?
1: Well, I think we're learning a lot. I think there, you know, there's an interesting backstory around pandemic preparedness out of Southeast Asia, which is a number of countries that had early, that had experiences in 2003 with SARS and how they're responding in 2020. Uh, There are some notable differences between those countries and countries that are becoming aware of the threat of emerging infectious diseases, understanding a lot about what, uh, you know, what public health preparedness looks like, what pandemics are. uh, And I think that there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from countries that have already been through it. I think, and I'm talking from a a perspective of the United States, I think that, um, you know, understanding what what the, the sacrifice needs to be, Uh, understanding how infectious diseases are spread, understanding what the connection is between economics and health, understanding how early interventions can have both significant uh, public health, but also economic benefits in terms of uh, minimizing the spread and then also minimizing the need for these broad-based lockdowns, which don't necessarily uh, go over very well in the United States and many countries. Uh, and then And then, understanding what that sacrifice looks like uh, in order to move beyond that so that that looks like obviously flattening flatten the curve, which is a term that everybody is um, now familiar with but it's it 's more than that it 's um, bending the curve while you 're bending the curve, you really need to be making the investments investments in testing, investments in uh, public health infrastructure like con- contact tracing um, and investments in um, you know Uh, plans to narrow the social distancing as the, uh, as we learn more about the spread. So some of the big questions that we have are, what does transmission look like in schools, right? So when we look into that, then, you know, we can make decisions, understand whether uh, school closings are an important part of the equation, or maybe they are, we can bring the schools back, and that brings, you know, a lot of young parents who are uh, under tremendous difficulty in terms of childcare, but also maintaining their own livelihoods, that would relieve some of the economic strain on those communities. Uh, And then we can continue to uh, research treatments, research into vaccines, uh, and think about what are the ways to protect protect the vulnerable populations, which we now know are elderly, people with underlying conditions. uh, And we can slowly, incrementally, in an evidence-based fashion, um, release some of this you know difficult broad-based lockdown and exchange it for you know more targeted social distancing uh in ways that uh you know ultimately get us out of this difficult situation but you know that requires you know collective action it requires understanding of the risk understanding of the spread and you know in the united states there's not really necessarily a shared understanding or a shared narrative around the severity uh around what the best practices are uh, there's still a lot of, you know, there's the politicization, the politicization of mask wearing, you know, some people are against mask wearing on human rights grounds and then other people are uh, uncomfortable with people that aren't wearing masks and that that turns into a proxy for a political, you know, a political ideological battle, which is not good for uh, outbreaks in any way, there should be a sort of a commitment uh, by the community as a whole to get through it together. And right now, you know, we're, you know, we're not seeing that, you know, as much as we could be in the United States.
0: Sure. No, I I, I hear your point, but uh, my understanding on the pandemic is very different. And that is uh, based on my training as a scientist. And what I see is that pandemic is a portal to evolution the way our species has evolved is because of these viral infections that we have been getting over the years. If we look at our human genome, you know, almost half of that is made of, you know, the virus DNA. So every time the virus infection happens, the virus invasion happens, if we, you know, want to talk from the perspective of a war, then, you know, that uh, when you get into our DNA, it leaves behind, you know, certain segments of its, you know, genome. So that carries over, carries forward, you know, in future generations if it gets into, you know, certain cells. And then that's how, you know, evolution has happened. And that's how we see many races, you know, different races have different immunity, different, you know, uh, challenges in, you know, facing certain, you know, health vulnerabilities. Not all of us, if. Many of us stand in one room and, you know, if somebody is infected, then not all of us get infected because of that. Some of us, you know, have resistance. Some of us are much stronger than others. So there are many different roles from a scientific perspective. But what you said about, you know, that we don't have the same collective risk, you know, understanding. I I think you are absolutely right about that. None of us, you know, are understanding the risk today and, you know, managing risk. Is not taken very seriously. You know, risk management and planning should go hand in hand. We we risk professionals we understand that quite clearly. But understanding of risk, you know, identifying it in a timely manner, communicating that that we are not seeing that because the risk management the discipline is not taken very seriously. So that's where we have the challenge. But when we when we look at how you give examples of the SARS and you know other. Uh, uh, pandemics or epidemics rather, you know, uh, we have witnessed in the last few years. But if we see the way we are managing this pandemic is pretty much like, you know, the Spanish flu, the physical distancing and all these, how, why we should, every country, you know, out of fear shut down their economies. That itself shows that we have not evolved in how we can manage these kind of outbreak. And especially when we look at, the advances that we have made you know, in science and technology. So pandemics, we all know that they don't occur every year. However, planning and preparing for a pandemic is important to ensure effective response. So while public health officials and healthcare professionals and scientists, everybody, they are trying to work together and prepare for any possible pandemic that can happen you know, in the coming years. Do you think that our nations, were prepared or are prepared for COVID nineteen pandemic. Not just United States, but looking at every other country, do you see that there was any level of preparedness?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting question. I think you know there's a, there are a number of sort of general assumptions about pandemics uh, from the pandemic preparedness community. One of those is that no country will will perform perfectly. There are challenges uh, that the virus poses that. Uh, that will be almost impossible for a a a country how no, no matter how prepared they are to to perfectly prepare for. That said, there's lots you can do. Uh you know, in the pandemic preparedness community, there has been for a long time, you know, particularly after SARS, but even before then, there was this recognition of, you know, you hear it a lot, it's be it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You know, we know uh what the general phenomenon is or the general dynamics are of uh, animals intermingling with humans and viruses, you know, it being introduced into the human populations that humans have no uh, previous exposure to. And the risks that they pose, we're familiar with that. You know, we saw it in SARS. We've seen it with MERS. We've seen it with uh, new flu strains. We saw it with Zika. Uh, we've we've seen it with um, Ebola, you know, in, in Africa. Uh, and so there's you know, if from the pandemic preparedness perspective, there's sort of two different buckets that I like to say that there are, that that we look at in terms of risk management. There's the stop it there before it gets here approach, which is monitoring and surveillance, uh, understanding sort of what, how humans are uh, encroaching on different ecosystems uh, and what the risks are uh, from for viruses from wild animals and farm animals, uh, what the risks are for those types of viruses to make a jump to to humans and then cause this type of outbreak. Uh, That's very difficult research. There are viruses probably in the tens of millions, hundreds of millions in animals that are uh, mutating and moving around all the time. The overwhelming majority of them are harmless to humans, either they're not transmissible um, or they're not not severe, They're, they're they're not deadly, they don't really cause any harm. But every now and then something happens uh, a virus mutates in some way. It recombines with another virus uh, and it becomes both transmissible uh, and lethal or, you know, or, or severe and it causes severe illness. Uh, and we have, you know, there's been a number of efforts at the international level to try to surveil that, to try to kind of get out in front of whatever this process is that ultimately introduces these new viruses. Uh, and there has been progress. You know, the, the our... Ability to understand the human genome and viruses uh, very quickly in 2020 is very different than even it was in 2009 for H1N1 or 2003, uh, and so we are we have made progress there. The, this is not a surprise to the pandemic preparedness community. Uh, unfortunately, in a number of countries, the prioritization has not necessarily uh, really persisted since SARS since 2003. Uh, And so we've seen a number of challenges. We've seen challenges in the U.S., which I can speak to more personally, but challenges around maintaining the stockpiles, um, understanding hospital surge, understanding, uh, you know, just having the basic local and state public health capacity. So that's very traditional shoe leather epidemiology, we call it. It's just uh, testing and contact tracing. Someone is sick, we tell them to isolate. We contact trace everyone they've been in contact with. Those people, we asked them to quarantine, uh, and that is how you get out in front of an outbreak. Uh, in the United States and in many countries, whether rich or poor, uh, there, there was a lot of delay. There was a lot of debate. There were questions around leadership, questions around messaging. Uh, how do we get the right message out? How do we keep it from uh, getting overwhelmed by misinformation or bad actors or opportunists? Um, and all of those things slowed us down. Uh, some countries uh, did respond very quickly uh, from Vietnam to Taiwan to Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Iceland. Uh, those countries that, that took this sort of public health response early uh, and stuck to a sort of evidence-based approach that, sought, that seeks to balance, uh, you know, create a balance between panic and complacency. Uh, those countries are in a better position now. Um, and we'll hopefully be able to respond to smaller spikes in cases in a more targeted manner. And that is not where we're at in the United States. It's not where Brazil is at right now. I think there's a lot of questions about the outbreak in Brazil. Uh, Latin America, more generally, I think is um, really in a difficult spot right now. The trajectory is very concerning. Um, the ability to maintain long-standing lockdowns is very low. Um, and the cases are mounting. And we're seeing that uh, really, kind of create its own, new, you know, new challenges in a different continent. So there's different challenges that are that the challenges that countries face are very context specific. And now we're really kind of confronting what that looks like in Latin America and possibly other continents
0: moving forward. Sure, sure. I mean, I I I hear your point, and I think uh, it will. Time will tell us short term, you know, long term, where uh, who benefited. Uh, from the approach that they took in how to manage this pandemic, which countries you know benefited and which countries lost. I mean, it's very likely that what we feel today that these countries, you know, because they uh, were quite ahead in in contact tracing, that they were able to prevent uh, this, you know, further spread of the virus. Now it's very likely that you know. Uh, the countries where it spreaded more like in United States and Brazil and other countries that we may develop, you know, we may end up getting certain trades that would put us ahead of, you know, many other countries, you know, from an evolutionary perspective. So this is something that we are not going to know today, but it's going, it's a very unique scientific puzzle that we have to look at that what traits are we going to get from this, you know, virus uh, from an evolutionary perspective. So even if we are suffering right now, uh, you know, 100 years from now, if we end up getting, let's say, resistance to electromagnetic spectrum, uh, that we are more EM, EM resistant, then that would have that would be worth going through all this because we want to develop that, those kind of resistance if we want to, you know, go on our universal journey because we, not all planets, you know, have these earth-like conditions. So there are a lot of, you know, interesting uh, curiosity, you know, that is emerging from this, but the point that you made about that the virus, you know, the jump from animals to humans, that is something that we need to investigate further because The question is, why did it jump? What changed in our human ecosystem, in our environment? That made it conducive, that made it, you know, favorable environment for the virus to jump from the animals to, you know, humans. That is something that we do need to understand because if there are some gaps, vulnerabilities emerging, weaknesses emerging in our environment, that is impacting human body, that is impacting human metabolism and physiology at cellular level, That is something we do need to understand. Otherwise, you know, this is not the only pandemic. We will probably get many more pandemics in the coming year. So these are, you know, bigger questions that we do, scientific community need to solve. But to understand the effectiveness of medical care, it is important to understand healthcare and human health because all these are tied. So how are we understanding human health? What determines human health and who is responsible for it? are the questions that we need to understand because what we see human health or what we see healthcare right now rather I should say is more like a disease care. So yes, we have, you know, all these fancy hospitals, you know, highly equipped with all these technologies. Are we actually doing anything for the betterment of the health of anybody, any race, any community? Because I don't think we are doing that. If we were doing that, not so many people would be getting so sick. So, what's your understanding? Is our healthcare effective? Is it something that you know we should be focusing on for you know having a better preparedness for coming tomorrow?
1: Yeah. Well, I no, I think it's an important question. So, um, you know, my background is public health. Uh, I am not a doctor. Uh, I think the discipline of public health is very interested in a lot of the questions you're asking there. The, dis- the discipline of healthcare is essentially a subcategory of public health broadly speaking so public health really does look at a lot of these things what are the determinants of health what are the what are the impacts of certain behaviors what are the impacts of socioeconomic differences uh, exposure to different uh, environmental health risks exposure to different uh, things like transportation access to tra- you know access to communi- you know communication you know trust in government uh, ability to uh, you know advocate for one's own kind of uh, betterment of their health, and then also the the role of humans in the broader uh, in the broader environment, in the broader ecosystem, in terms of you know pandemic preparedness and the emergence of new infectious disease. You know we don't fully know exactly how this uh, COVID-19 emerged, but we do know that viruses like this are uh, you know mutating all the time in animals. Uh, and when humans uh, encroach on those ecosystems, so this includes sort of development onto, onto existing ecosystems, it includes the sale of you know, wild animals, it includes factory farming, where you're putting lots of animals in very close quarters and other you know, humans are interacting with uh, those animals that are in very close quarters. Uh, you know, so there are so many different drivers that are not, uh, you know, retreating. They are increasing. So our human behavior, um, in terms of, you know, 2009 H1N1, the the S, the, the best ca- the best guess is that it emerged in a factory farm in North Carolina. Uh, you know, SARS emerged in southern China. Uh, you know, the Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu, you know, first started spreading far and wide in a you know military barracks in Kansas. Um, and so there are all of these human behaviors that ultimately create a kind of an ideal setting for uh, viruses to evolve, uh, to find new hosts, to uh, you know become more efficient at transmitting and replicating. Uh, and those are and and our scientific understanding is improving, but our behavioral response continues to get. Uh, more risky, and that includes even just uh, international travel. You know, so 1918, the Spanish flu uh, circumnavigated the globe about three times uh, over the course of 18 months. Let's say, in 2020, it happens in about 48 hours. You know, because of how much humans are moving around the world. 1918, there was no uh, air travel. In 2020, there's plenty of air travel. Not right now, but uh, there normally it's it's an incredibly Efficient way for viruses to spread globally, and you know we haven't really created the systems in place to identify them, uh, to think about ways in which you know human behavior more generally um, can be more resilient or more responsive to this you know well-known biological phenomenon, and we have to not just rely on some type of healthcare intervention you know, technology will not save us from COVID-19 tomorrow. There is a there is a chance that, it, that a vaccine will be very important at some point in the next, say, three to 18 months, um, but that's no guarantee. We are still, there's still a lot of questions around how this virus behaves in terms of immunity, how long lasting it is, uh, how many people, how much protection it, it provides, uh, and then also what the role of vaccines would be under that type of immunity environment. So if if we do, you know, we, we know a little bit about coronaviruses. We know that uh, the common cold coronavirus does not provide lifelong immunity. It usually provides some type of immunity that may be a year, maybe a couple years, uh, but it starts to fade over time. So then we have to really think about what the near future looks like of, say, vaccinating the whole world or vaccinating a very large percentage of the world. That's develop, manufacture, and distribute billions of doses of a vaccine that's never been injected into humans before. Uh, and then think about what comes after that. What, come, what happens if the immunity that that big vaccine provides isn't long lasting? And then we have, you know, then you have a situation where uh, perhaps we re- you know, retreat into a uh, situation that's similar to seasonal flu, where you have to continuously get vaccinated. That's not ideal. Uh, seasonal flu still kills many people a year, pandemic flu still still exists as a very significant threat um, that we haven't really kind of gotten out in front of yet, um, and then there's the, the possibility that this challenge, this uh, incredibly difficult crisis, will take our eyes off the ball for whatever the next challenge is, and we'll do what commonly referred to as planning for the last disaster, um, and that is a really, uh, you know, that is a, a persistent part of modern life is that there are a number of different challenges on the horizon. Some of them are uncertain. Some of them we know about. Uh, but all of them require a much more systemic approach to getting out in front of them, not making this into a uh, sort of a, a falling back into some type of technological uh, solution mindset where we will just, modern medicine will solve it. Um, and we don't really have to worry about our behavior, worry about the sort of the natural dynamics of the of the human, of the physical world that are still creating the, the environment for th- these types of threats to continue to emerge now into the future and then also uh, could make us more vulnerable to additional types of threats that we don't even know about yet.
0: Sure. Of course, you know, human responsibility and accountability needs to be at the core of uh our decision-making process, especially, we are not talking about independent risk. We, are, When it comes to interconnected, interdependent risk, all of us n- needs to be you know, accountable. So this ca- pandemic is, it fits into that category. It's a interconnected, interdependent, integrated risk. So we cannot, uh, every one of us needs to be responsible because we, any weakness in our human chain, is going to create, you know, complex challenges and it will, you know, create further, uh, you know, spread of the pandemic. But talking about what role technology has or whether technology will be able to prevent any further, you know, any future pandemic. I firmly believe that we can make this our very last pandemic. Now, the question is whether we want to make this our very last pandemic. Because if you look at all the advances we have made from AI to Internet of Things to biosensor technology, it is not difficult to create a system and implement that all over the world in a way that any you know, outbreak will immediately give us an alert, timely alert. We are not talking about alert, the kind that we got from World Health Organization we are talking about timely alert in real time and you know if we get those kind of alert we will immediately be able to stop the spread of the virus but the question is it's not just virus any bacteria or any other microorganism but the question is do we want that so that is something collectively as a society we need to come to terms with that do we really want to put pandemics behind us because, you know, if we want to, it is definitely, you know, most certainly possible to do that. But there, there needs to be a will for that because then, you know, it comes about politics, you know, and the politics of investment and politics of industries and all that we don't want to discuss on this because that's a topic of another discussion. But if we want to do that, we can make this our very last pandemic. Now talking about the vaccines. Sure, you know, vaccines, we have come a long way and, you know, a lot of advances are happening. The rapid way we were able to come up with, you know, new ways of creating vaccine this time for this particular virus is, you know, uh, quite, you know, uh, amazing in a way, you know, if you put it, you know, simply, you know, there are so many vaccine trials going on and a lot of them are very interesting, you know. So I look forward to seeing those results. But if we... when we look at this you know the broader you know challenge is facing us as a society so we need to define you know what problems we never want and what problems we can live with so based on that we can come up with effective you know intelligence effective you know brainstorming and we can definitely you know solve all those problems we have enough you know brain power in this world to be able to put you know, complex uh, challenges behind us, but there needs to be a will for that. So if you look at this pandemic, it's attacking the society at its very core and nations are facing this crisis, unlike anything they have faced in the last century. So we have, like we have been witnessing and reading the news that it has killed, you know, many, many people, hundreds of thousands, and it has spread so much human suffering and It's still, you know, there is no certainty that it's stopping here. While it looks like we are getting a pause right now, but it look, it is not going away. It may come back, you know, in the second wave. So there are many implications for this health implications, economic implications, but most important is the societal implications. What do you see happening in our society? What kind of societal risk and you know societal crises you see emerging, based on you know the way we have handled this pandemic so far, and what needs to change? Well, I think some of the some of the more sort of structural
1: challenges or some of the structural issues that we're seeing now around access to critical goods, around the just-in-time supply chain, uh, I think that will that will be really reassessed. I think there will be a lot of uh, efforts to bring manufacturing back home around some of these critical goods to build up our own domestic vaccine manufacturing capacity, our own capacity to build, you know, to create, you know, to uh, manufacture PPE, face masks, gloves, gowns. Um, all of those things will become tied up into probably a larger national security uh, argument in terms of those types of investments. And then also more generally, I think globalization as a uh, system is uh, really kind of under strain right now. There are a lot of political movements that find the, that find globalization to be a net negative for their communities, uh, and those uh, arguments are ascendant right now. There are they are you know there is a lot of uh, skepticism around globalization that really might change our own access to goods, our relationship to other countries, our diplomatic relationship, our economic relationship, uh, and that I think is a you know a fairly short-term discussion. What well, let's say perhaps a challenge a confrontation that will happen um, in the aftermath. I think the, some of the other things that might happen is our um, relationship with healthcare will possibly change. It might in fact move to let's say more telemedicine. There may be a more appreciation for um technology uh as a way to a minimize spread, uh make healthcare more efficient, um, you know, make uh you know put us in a position where if we are kind of faced with this type of threat again, we will have more tools, we will be able to transition to a more uh protective posture quicker. Uh telemedicine is an excellent example of that. But then there are also, you know, there's also just a lot of Um, you know, the, the the debate that was really brewing before the coronavirus pandemic was around privacy and data. Um, and there was a lot of concern around the role of, uh, you know, big data, uh, in our private lives. And I think that will still be a big concern. I think there are a lot of people that are very, um, that question the role, you know, the, the question, the risks around, uh, handing over so much of their data at the same time. There are obviously benefits to having access to large data sets that can be deployed during emergencies. Uh, And you're seeing this now in a number of countries that are rolling out these digital contact tracing apps that are able to identify individuals' contacts, identify uh, what their risk might be for transmission, uh, let them know if they've been in contact with other people who've been infected. And that's going to be a really big discussion. I think it will not be the same around the world. I think that there will be pushback in a number of probably Western European countries and the United States around this question of privacy. Uh, in places like South Korea, uh, there has been much more of an embrace. Singapore, there has been an embrace of these uh, approaches. And I would still say, even in those countries, it's not countries. It's not exactly uh, complete embrace. There are there is still concern, but there is uh, more willingness, I think, to engage in some of this more type of 21st century epidemiological approach, approaches than there are perhaps in the United States. I, you know, I think time will tell. Uh, some of that has to do with the urgency, the risk. It has to do with uh, you know, the, the, the way that this conversation takes shape over time and you know, who's, who's out there in front, who's out in front shaping this conversation. How do, how do we communicate the risks and the benefits of kind of uh, participating more in some type of data sharing infrastructure? Uh, and I, you know, I personally don't know where I stand on that. I know that I appreciate both the risks and the promise of things like digital contact tracing uh, and data aggregation and you know, uh, you know, machine learning. All of those things are obviously uh, potentially incredibly beneficial to humanity. But at the same time, it doesn't take much sort of science fiction speculation around how that can be used by bad actors, how it can kind of undermine the social fabric uh, you know, of communities instead of build it. And all of those, I think all of the, we are entering into an era where those questions will really be front and center. Um, and the, I think the resolution or the, the, the ultimate uh, final kind of landing place, our society's um, end at or kind of where we land on this issue, I think it's still very uncertain.
0: I, I, I hear your points and uh, your hesitation in taking, you know, in deciding, you know, where you stand on this because these are very really complex questions and we need to be very thoughtful about, you know, where we go as a society and the point you made about the globalization, I think globalization in the current format is almost as good as dead. It is not going to survive. And it's not just because of COVID-19 that we saw the vulnerabilities in the supply chain and how uh, we may face much bigger challenges because of the broken supply chain, especially in the food industry, you know, and uh, agriculture. That, as and we all witnessed, you know, how difficult it was to even get the face mask and uh, personally protective equipment. So th- this form of globalization, is not going to survive. You know, Every country will need to be self-sufficient in basic needs that you know, they need for survival and security for their country. So we will have to think really hard how we can all work together, every country can work together, but this form of globalization cannot survive. And the point that you made about the privacy, I think privacy that we were used to, over the years that definition and the nature has absolutely changed we cannot expect the same level of privacy that we had over the years because of the digital age you know the cyberspace has completely uh, fundamentally changed that but when it comes to contact tracing application i think i have no hesitation in saying that it's an overreach and the reason i'm saying that is because if you look at the what on what promise they are, you know, trying to sell this, the technology companies. I, I, I am a very strong uh, supporter of technology, but here the benefits, I don't see that. They want to, you know, make sure that, you know, if we know who, you know, came in contact with who, then, you know, we can prevent the further spread. But I think there is a huge or these are virus particles. Even if you don't touch someone, even if you don't talk to someone, by just being in that environment, that virus can be in your in the air, it can stay there for hours. If anybody else passes through, if, even if people you don't talk to, you don't know, it it may or may not infect them. So the whole premise of that we will be able to control the spread of the virus based on you know knowing who you know people come in contact with. I think fundamentally we all believe in autonomy. This is not even about privacy or you know data security. This is about our fundamental rights of autonomy, freedom in deciding what we want to do, where we want to do, who we want to talk to, where we want to go. We don't want that govern the global surveillance on that or you know technological surveillance about our you know whereabouts, who we talk to, who we don't talk to. That should not be allowed. Because the fundamental freedom what I want to eat, how I want to treat my body, how I want to, you know, take care of my health, wellness, who I want, who I meet, who I associate with, that is nobody's business but mine. And if we allow others to, you know, create that surveillance network in the name of COVID-19, then I think, you know, we are, as a society, going to suffer, you know, significantly. And I would definitely not support that so these are these are some big questions we all have to be very very cautious about because this is not just about you know the viral infection this is about our fundamental freedom our fundamental rights to autonomy so that is just you know what i think now when we talk about the covid 19 and the role we all have to play not just the governments not just the healthcare industry but we as individuals what is our role you know, in this interconnected, interdependent system. So that is something we have to, you know, start evaluating, you know, very seriously, because just depending on governments, just depending on World Health Organization, just depending on the hospitals and doctors, are we able to, you know, take care of our problems, these significant problems in the coming years? I think uh, that's where I have, you know, I think we need to focus on. Do you think that just depending on governments or World Health Organization or any of these systems that we have to we have put in place is that enough for us to you know manage our you know critical security risk in the terms of you know uh, infectious disease coming our way, or should we create a citizen force to assist us in reporting disease outbreak in a timely manner?
1: So I think broadly speaking, in in, in in general, all disasters are local. In that, that at a certain point, you you cannot uh, depend on federal government, international health organizations. I think it is about community. It's about uh, working together with your neighborhood, particularly in sort of severe acute emergencies. Uh, that's that includes things like you know floods and earthquakes and hurricanes. Pandemics are a little different in that they unfold over a longer period of time. But they're also similar in that there is an expectation that local communities will be on the front lines of really kind of mounting a response. That can be the local public health agency, community health workers, uh, individuals, neighborhood, you know, neighborhood groups. Um, And it is a, it is a, these things tend to become localized very quickly. Uh, So in that sense, I think there, there, there should be no expectation of some large Uh, either company or government or um, UN organization being sufficient to help us respond to whatever the next, you know, challenges that we face. Uh, I think that, um, you know, more broadly, there is the the role of individuals in uh, educating themselves and understanding, you know, what their responsibility is. I think in turn, you know, this has been a very, this has been a crash course in public health for many people. Uh, You know, this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. uh, But I'm also now, you know, know, I'm also now talking to people that are much more knowledgeable on some of the fundamental core concepts of public health. um, And the role of uh, that type of preventive or, um, you know, proactive effort to address some of these challenges, whereas to your question earlier, Healthcare tends to be reactive. Public health is really about being proactive uh, and addressing some of the root causes. Some of the root causes right now include deep, deep polarization, political polarization, right? The the fact that nobody can even agree in the United States around what's happening or on how severe it is. It is a it is tearing us apart, both sort of socially, but also from a health perspective, because we're unable to really mount a coordinated response, and that is a local, state, and federal response that is required. And so, all of these things um, get back to I think your earlier point about the interconnectedness. Obviously, every neighborhood group behaving on their own would also be a challenge because it would it, anything that you do could be undermined by you know the the next neighbor, the next neighborhood over. So there needs to be coordination and cooperation, but there can't be. There can't be an expectation of uh, some type of uh, super national or large entity that, that will provide the necessary resources to all people equally because there, there will be a shortage. There is a shortage. Uh, the nature of a lot of these challenges will persist after coronavirus. There won't be necessarily, there may be a, a sort of a effort to build more redundancy into the system. There won't be enough redundancy to respond to whatever the next challenge is in terms of uh, whatever the, the, the supplies that are in short, is in short supply, uh, whatever type of new uh, understanding and messaging and communication outreach is necessary. All of those things will be uh, once again stressed. Uh, it may be an infectious disease. It may be something related to climate change or social unrest. Uh, or cyber terrorism, or you know all of these issues are certainly uh, p- potential challenges that we 're understanding now we are so vulnerable to, and I think that 's one of that 's sort of the, the 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 headspace that I think a lot of people will need to kind of move to is that it may not be a coronavirus pandemic next time, but a lot of the stress on the system will be there, and that is the um, you know and that is the type of thinking that we need It's the type of honesty and transparency from our leaders that we need to really get out in front of this conversation recognizing that we may not no one's going to be perfect there will be challenges that will uh have you know that, that will create damage will create loss of life but the minimum the mitigation of that minimizing those toll is possible through a very kind of a concerted uh evidence-based approach that doesn't allow itself to get kind of short circuited by bad actors politicians opportunists all of these things that we're seeing now that are really undermining the response in the US but in also other countries
0: sure i understand so you are very passionate about public health you're very passionate about risk and resilience and you know politics so you you just you know summarize quite a bit about you know what you would like to see but what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially the young, brilliant minds who are trying to enter this field of, you know, public health, as you know, they see the impact that they, this pandemic has created on the society and how it has pretty much collapsed, you know, all all the systems. So, a lot of young people are, are very curious, are very eager to make a difference, to bring, you know, the positive changes in our systems and society. So, what would you like to tell them?
1: I think that's a good question that you asked a question that's very near and dear to my heart because it's something that I'm, I grapple with every day. And and really the short answer is a respect and a humility around uncertainty, right? We have a a sort of an epidemic of hyper certainty out there. We have an epidemic of oversimplification of what we call armchair epidemiology. The, 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 the act of thinking that you understand. The very the incredibly complex nature of this challenge uh, is itself a liability. Being humble to just how complex it is, being humble to just how uncertain this environment is, but how a evidence-based approach that is iterative, it's not about panic, it's not about blame, it's not about complacency, it's about here's what we know, No, no having that information recognizing that it's imperfect information What's the best path forward when we make that decision? can we course correct if we if new information becomes available? I think that mindset is in short supply, I think in general with the adults. I think many of the the youth today are witnessing that. I think you know people you know people who are not necessarily in a decision making position are are witnessing this epidemic of hyper certainty um, and of you know incredible reluctance to be. Uh, transparent about how much we don 't know and how much we really need to um, build an evidence base around our decision making and understand that that won 't be perfect, but there is a, but that will be the best approach to minimizing the damage and the the, the opposite scenario where we have people who don 't accept their shortcomings they don 't accept the mistakes they double down on mistakes, they hide behind ideology or political parties. Uh, that those people, those types of systems will, uh, ultimately, I think I'm hopeful, uh, be reconsidered after all of this is done because that is really what is, uh, I mean, what is at the core of some of our challenge, some of our challenge right now and really kind of getting a shared understanding of what's happening, uh, creating a kind of a a unified approach, uh, a humble approach. A way of communicating that humility to audiences that brings them in you know brings them into the tent doesn't make doesn't create a sort of a antagonistic relationship doesn't create a you know false authority or a you know an overly simplified narrative that when that narrative falls apart, the credibility of the messenger also falls apart and if you can if we can kind of create an environment where in the future that conversation can be had in a more measured way, in a more thoughtful way, in a more, you know, uh, equitable way an inclusive way, bringing people in and not kind of making it a, a contest or a confrontational. I think that would be uh, that would be an incredible torch to hand over to the, to the next generation.
0: No, that, is a, that is a good, excellent advice I would say for, you know, to keep in mind about being open-minded, being humble, and focus on uh, the efforts on, you know, evidence-based uh, medicine, evidence-based approach and not get bogged down by the ideology because managing risk is above any ideology. So we should, you know, be very, very focused on the objectivity of our analysis because that's what our job is. You know, if you want to bring very effective solutions, then we want to make sure that we stay objective in our approach. We cannot be partisan. And that is something we all professionals have to keep in mind. So thank you so much, Professor Resistain, for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on pandemic preparedness. And our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you shared today. And even if a single individual, organization or nation is able to understand how to better prepare for pandemics after listening to this discussion. This Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that.
1: Thanks for having me, it's been great.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community, and our ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations Collaborating to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk to protect the future of humanity. Add your voice to risk groups. Get involved to protect the future of humanity. Thank you.